0: I was just thinking that myself, Rick. Well, it is, it is great to see y'all, and I just got back from Mexico, and as I was in Mexico, people messaged me and texted me before I went, and when I was there, they were like, be careful, come back soon, don't get beheaded, don't get kidnapped, don't get shot. And when I was in Mexico, I was inviting people to come to the States and visit, and they're like, no way, man, I'm going to get caught up in some mass shooting at the mall if I go to the States. They said, there's no way I'm going to the States. They, they said that, um, he said, I'm going to get caught up in the middle of some uh, riots that's fueled by racial tension. That's our perception of them through the media. That's their perce- perception of the States through the media. But you know, whether you're American or Mexican, or whether you're black or white, or whether you're Asian or Indian, and the list goes on and on and on. We are fearfully and wonderfully made by a God who celebrates in his creative genius diversity. And we saw on the news this past week the white supremacists leading a charge in racism, or so we thought they were leading the charge in racism in the United States. In actuality, the ones who are leading the charge in racism in the United States aren't white supremacists, it's the church. Billy Graham said the most segregated hour in America is Sunday morning, and I sadly have to concur. We not, might not it and yell slurs at one another, but we put it on our signs, black church, Spanish church, Vietnamese church, and if you're a rich white church, you don't put it on your sign, you just size people up before they come in. And that breaks the heart of God because that is not His design for the local church. There are two plots running throughout the book of Acts. The first plot is the gospel of Jesus Christ turning the world upside down as the church is born. And the second plot are Jews and Gentiles coming together to be one church family. And if you think racial tension is steep in our culture, it was, believe it or not, nothing compared to the hatred that the Jews had for the Gentiles and the distrust and hatred that the the Gentiles had for the Jews... And the moment they received Christ and the Spirit entered their heart, they were given the gift of tongues. It was an evangelistic sign in that specific context. But even more than that, it unified Jews and Gentiles and Hebrew and Aramaic-speaking Jews with uh, Gentiles from all different languages to come together and worship Jesus Christ as one. And you know, one day we're going to get to heaven and the scriptures tell us in the book of Revelation that before the throne of God, from every tribe, every nation, praising God in their own tongue. Do you want to know what that means? That means that when we do get to heaven, all of us together, as the body of Christ, there is something unique to our origin and to our identity here that we not only maintain there, but we express in a greater fullness. And so church if we want to honor Christ and have the heart of Christ and if we want to reflect heaven we had better reflect our culture we had better reflect our community not in the sense of morals but in the sense of creativity where more is one come together as one because our differences are God's design not to divide us black church white church Spanish church Vietnamese church our differences are God's creative design not to divide us, but to complete us. I wouldn't want to go to a back, black church, it's uh, incomplete. I wouldn't want to go to an Asian church, it's incomplete. I wouldn't want to go to a Spanish church, it's incomplete. I wouldn't want to go to a white church, it's incomplete. I want to go to HopeWorks because HopeWorks represents the book of Acts, and that represents the heart of Christ, and that represents the throne room of heaven because that is representing the culture that we are reaching with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you want to be part of a church like that, please put your hands together right now. And I love that our cultures and our, 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 our unique create, creative differences uh, don't divide us, but they bring us together to more fully reflect the heart of God to this lost and dying world. Some of you polish up nicely, some of us not so much, no matter. When God looks at us, He doesn't see externals, He sees our heart. And without faith in the blood of Christ, we are all sinners in desperate need of a Savior. We all come equally to the table of God's unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness made possible through the cross of Christ and the blood of Jesus who makes us all equally the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So when we see each other, we step beyond socioeconomic and cultural barriers that divide us, and we love each other, and we celebrate Christ is one, and then a lost and dying world looks at the body of Christ, and they cannot deny that the Spirit of Christ is real, because He has unified us, and He's made us one. Amen to that? Amen. I love the words of Martin Luther King, Jr., who said in face of the violence and the hatred and the death threats, we shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you, but be you assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer, and one day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory." So if you have your Bibles, open with me to Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 12. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 12. And as the Holy Spirit leads you to find a place to roll up your sleeves and serve Christ in the body of Christ, I want to challenge you not to be a a victim of your culture and make your decision based upon convenience. Somebody said, Jesus, let me follow you, but first let me go say bye to my family. Jesus said, whoever puts his hand in the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of of heaven. Don't make your decision based upon convenience. Don't make your decision based upon comfort. Somebody else said, Lord, I'll, I'll follow you, but what are the accommodations like? And Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. When you are wrestling through and praying through your decision of where to roll up your sleeves and what trenches of ministry to enter into, don't make your decision based upon comfort. Don't make your decision based upon convenience. Make your decision based upon calling. Where is the Holy Spirit of Christ leading you? And your only response is not to wonder, will this be successful or will this be a failure? Will I be safe or will I be martyred? Your only response is to say, here am I, Lord, send me, I surrender my all and all. All to you. You know a year before HopeWorks bought this building we were struggling. We grew with the surge of inner city kids and that uh we were up until that time uh, all white and all right with being all white. <laughs> and we grew with the surge of inner city kids 70 kids came to Christ in one year and we're sitting on the first few rows and yeah let's praise God for that. And I realized that people didn't share our enthusiasm because they were basing their ideal on how to serve based upon comfort or convenience, but not calling. And they left. Many did. God was preparing us. We were struggling, but God was preparing us for a sovereign hand to lead us into this location to minister to a beautifully diverse neighborhood. And. I was getting complaints, I was getting criticized, and I told the Lord, Lord, if you give me a green light, I am so out of here. (laughs) And one day I was rummaging through a bookstore, and I got a phone call from my sending church. It was a big church. They were running, you know, around 1,500 to 2,000 or so in a state-of-the-art thousand-seat theater in a suburb uh, right off a busy highway. And they said, hey, would you come preach in view of a call? And I said, you bet I will. <laughs> that means I'm going to go basically apply over there. I said, yes, definitely. And I went and I preached, and they treated me with such honor. And there were 33 deacons, and it was unanimous. They voted me in. No, no, no. The elders, 12 elders, it was unanimous. 33 deacons, 67% voted me in. All that remained was one last sermon to the congregation, a simple majority, and then I was their pastor. And I would walk through that state-of-the-art theater, and my spirit grieved. And I thought, I want to want this, but this... (laughs) This place feels more like a casket to me. And then I would, I would go hang out with the teens on Wednesday night, and my heart felt alive. And I had to go where the peace was. And I unequivocally declined. And the very next Sunday at the Botanic Gardens where we were nomads, I thought God was going to reward my faithfulness by a packed out Botanic Gardens. It was Uh, There wasn't hardly anybody there. I was still getting all kinds of complaints. During worship, the multimedia screen fell over, and my heart just sank as I thought of my foregone alternative. I was suffering from cognitive dissonance. And then the next Monday, I'm looking through the windows of crummy rental facilities trying to find a permanent place for us, but my spirit was alive. And all that to say... You were called to serve Christ, you were called to follow Christ, you were called to unleash your spiritual gifts in the body of Christ, you were called to build up the body of Christ, but don't you make your decision based upon comfort, don't you make your decision based upon convenience, you make your decision based upon the Lord's calling, and yours is not to say, what will happen, will this succeed, will this fail, what will happen to me, will I live, will I die, will people like me, will people criticize me, yours is to say, yes, Lord, because my life is not mine. It is bought with the price, the blood of Jesus. I belong to you. Have your will. Have your way. Lead me, and I will trust you, and I will obey you. So our text is Proverbs chapter 13, verse 12. And it's written to some of you who feel like giving up on your calling. And it's written to you who feel like uh, just taking the easy way out, taking the, the American dream slash Christianity gospel way out, where you just start serving in the name of comfort or in the name of convenience or in the name of what can be done for me instead of how can I make a difference here through the power of Christ. It's written to those of you who are about to give up. And you're about to cash in your perseverance for the passing pleasures of your flesh. You're about to stop praying with a sense of expectancy, and you're about to grow bitter to God. You're about to stop in your daily relationship with Christ, and you just just give in to little simple luxuries. You're about to give up. You're about to give in. You're about to stop hoping and persevering and expecting and praying and serving and reaching out to a lost and dying world. You're about to quit. And Proverbs chapter 13 verse 12 tells us not to quit. And it tells us why we ought not to quit. Proverbs chapter 13 verse 12. And we read, hope deferred makes the heart sick. But but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. What a great verse, isn't it? Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. And this verse is saying, weary soul, weary Christian soldier, don't stop expecting God's fruitfulness in your life, don't stop expecting your prayer to be answered. Don't stop trusting in the unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness of Jesus Christ, but by the cross of Christ, don't stop persevering. Don't stop passionately serving in ministry and if you haven't started passionately serving in ministry yet, then roll up your sleeves and start now. Don't stop. Don't quit. Because hope deferred makes the heart sick But a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. And I must admit that I struggled with this verse this week. And I wrestled through it and I prayed through it all week long because at first glance it didn't make sense to me. At first glance it seemed to contradict everything that I knew about hope. Let's read it again. Proverbs chapter 13 verse 12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. This seems to tell us that there's people who have a longing in their heart and their hearts are growing sick and they're just the poor souls in this world, and there's people who have everything they want and they don't have to hope well, and they're the ones who are just blessed and they're the trees of life, and that's kind of discouraging. But that's not what it says at all. You see, by definition, hope is a longing in your heart that's unfulfilled. That is hope by definition. We read in Romans chapter 5, who hopes for what he already has. For hope seen is not hope at all. You see, hope is not being in a dark room and then a circumstantial ray of light breaking through. In other words, your circumstances look up and then your heart stops being so weary and sick and it hopes because you see that ray of light and you say, aha, there's hope. Ah, you know, I'm going to make it. That's not, that's not hope. Because we read in Romans 5, hope seen is not hope at all. For who hopes? For what he already has. Amen. Consider Abraham. He was 75 and then 99, his wife 10 years younger, they were barren together their entire lives and yet they still hoped, not based upon circumstances but based upon the promises of God. So by definition, hope is a longing that's unmet. Hope is a longing that's unfulfilled. Hope is a longing that continues to be deferred. So at first glance, this verse seems to contradict the very definition and essence of hope. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. And at first glance, this also... Seems to contrast somebody who, some poor soul whose destiny is to hope in this world and their heart is sick, and some lucky soul who has everything they want, and so they are a tree of life. And again, that's not what that says at all. So first of all, we have to look at who wrote this. Secondly, we have to wrote um, why they wrote it. And thirdly, we have to look at how they wrote it. So first, who wrote this? Solomon wrote it. Solomon wrote this. Now Solomon was the richest person who ever lived before or after, and that is documented. And archaeology backs that up. I was in Israel, and we were walking through this place. It's near where the Battle of Armageddon will be fought. And there was a hole. It was a well-dug a hole that had a ro- smooth rock all around it, basically a cylinder going straight down, taller than this roof, all the way down. And it was probably as wide as this stage, and there was a stairwell going all the way down it. You want to know what that was? That was to collect the food that was the grain for the horses. And on this particular archaeological site, there were basically stables, stone stables that could have housed 450 horses. Do you know who that belonged to? Solomon, the richest man who ever lived. It was only one of his thousands of barns. Archaeology today uh, corroborates and backs up what we know of the text, that Solomon was the richest man who ever lived before or after. In fact, you take our president, who's not shy about boasting about how much he has. What is it, some $3 billion, maybe, something like that? Who, who really knows? And then you take others who might have $6 billion and others who might have $4 billion. And then you take uh, Vladimir Putin, who I believe may be the wealthiest man in the entire world who has some $400 billion in his portfolio. You take all of their net wealth combined, and it is like this compared to the wealth of Solomon, whose wealth brought in some $2 trillion, not billion, $2 trillion in our equivalent, $2 trillion just in gold a year. Just a a year. That's not to mention what he got from taxes and imports from all other things and exports from all other things. Just two trillion a year in gold. That, what he got a year, far exceed all these other guys' portfolio combined. What does this guy know about hope? Not only that, he had a thousand wives. You say, well, how could he have really been the wisest man in the world? Exactly. read Ecclesiastes. He went off the deep end. But he came back, and that was part of his and Israel's undoing. In fact, you go to Israel today, they're not big fans of Solomon's legacy. King Hezekiah, they really bag about. King David, the city of David, Jerusalem, they love. King Solomon, his thousands of wives, when he went off in the deep end in Ecclesiastes, it brought a lot of pagan influence into their culture. And as a result, four years after his death, the kingdom was divided, never to be reunited again. But does this guy who has everything you could ever want, know about hope? Amen. Well, we read in Ecclesiastes that he says, Vanity, vanity, everything is vanity. The pursuit of money, the acquisition of money, the pursuit of glory, the acquisition of glory, the pursuit of women, the acquisition of women, the pursuit of literature and arts, the acquisition of all of these things. Everything the world could ever give me is nothing. It's meaningless. All that matters is that I've got a heart that fears God. Because that's the only thing that will satisfy. And what is a heart that fears God? It's a heart that longs to trust and obey God more than anything else in this world. It's a heart that longs to be satisfied in God. And so when Solomon in Proverbs 13, 12 is writing about hope, he's not writing about stuff. He's writing about a deep, deep desire in the heart and all of our hearts. And that desire can only be quenched by Christ. If St. Augustine said, oh God, you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless, our heart is thirsty until it finds its rest in you. Solomon had $2 trillion, thousands of stables that housed 450 horses, thousands of wives, anything he wanted, any second he wanted it. One of the greatest writers, one of the greatest poets... One of the greatest archaeologists, one of the greatest builders the world has ever known. And he said, all of this stuff is meaningless, it's useless, because my heart can only be satisfied by finding its rest in my relationship with God. So Solomon wrote this, and this tells us something about the text... And why he wrote it, he wrote it because his heart was restless, his heart tried to find satisfaction in a dry and weary land where there was no water, and his heart was designed like your heart and my heart is designed to find rest in God, and God alone. And some of you came in here beat up, and you're thinking, I just have to, I have to tame my desires in order to walk with God. I've got to beat my desires down in order to walk with God. I've got to be like one of these monks in the dark ages who climbed up on these steps in my knees in the cold and in the ice until my knees are bloody and my flesh doesn't have desire anymore. And then I, maybe I can walk like I'm supposed to walk. Or I've got to be like one of these monks who gets a whip and takes my shirt off in the monastery and just walks around beating myself with the whip until my, black is, my back is bloody and then I'll be able to walk with God no, 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 no as C.S. Lewis said your desires are not too strong your desires are too weak Your desires for Christ are too weak. Your desires for the living water are too weak. Your desires for the promises of God are too weak. Your desires for the things that God desires for you are too weak. Your desires for a lost and dying world to come to Christ are too weak. Your desires for the prodigals in your life to come home are too weak. Your desires are not too strong. Your desires are are too weak. And when your desires are fanned into flame appropriately, everything in this world Hells in comparison. As C.S. Lewis said, we are like children who are satisfied making mud pies when a vacation at the sea awaits. Living in this world is just like making mud pies, but when our desires for Christ are fanned into flame, it's like a holiday at the sea, and that is how God has designed us So Solomon wrote this. And the reason he wrote it was because his heart was longing to be satisfied. But how did he write it? And this is the key to understanding this text. As we know in this series, that the book of Proverbs are written in a poetic flow called parallelisms. Parallelisms whereas some of our poetry might have a rhyme and a rhythm to it. Jack and Jill ran up a hill, and that's great. But the problem with that particular poetic flow is maybe 500 years from now on a different continent and a different language, when that particular poem is translated, it has no rhyme and it has no rhythm. So it's lost its poetic flow. But Proverbs was geniusly written by Solomon, inspired by the Holy Spirit, through a poetic flow called parallelisms. And each proverb is written through one of three kind of parallelisms. The first kind of parallelism is synonymous parallelism. This is where the first statement communicates a truth in a short, pithy saying or proverb, long experience packed into a short and sweet sentence and then the second sentence in the verse says the same thing in a different way to reinforce that truth thus a synonymous the same parallelism so let's look at proverbs 13 12 and see if this is a synonymous parallelism to help us understand this text hope deferred makes the heart sick but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life no no now, not a synonymous parallelism. Well, there's another kind of parallelism uh, that Solomon writes in each of his um, uh, statements, each of his proverbs, and this is an antithetical parallelism or an opposite, where you make an initial statement, proverb, and then the second proverb says the opposite of what the first statement said in order to reinforce the same truth. That's an antithetical or opposite parallelism. So let's see if this is an antithetical parallelism. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Now, at first glance, this seems to be an antithetical parallelism. But if this were an antithetical parallelism, this would contradict what the Bible and every other place when it speaks about hope says about hope and defines hope and communicates hope. So, let's see if it's another kind of parallelism. And this third kind of parallelism would be called a synthetic parallelism. Or a progressive parallelism. Where the first statement makes a point and the second statement builds upon that point to reinforce the same truth. So it's synthetic or it's progressive. The idea builds on top of the first statement to reinforce the truth. Synthetic or progressive parallelism. So let's read Proverbs 13, 12 again. See if this is, see if this is synthetic parallelism. Hope deferred. Makes the heart sick. Ah, But a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. And now we can understand this verse. This is synthetic parallelism. It is progressive. The second statement builds on top of the first. So let's read it again. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. In other words, it could be read like this. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But if you don't give up, a longing fulfilled is going to be a tree of life or hope deferred makes the heart sick, but don't stop now because a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but God is with you and for you. Don't give up because if you keep persevering, a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. In other words, it could be translated with this particular flow of thought. Exercising your arms makes them burn, but getting in shape, will make you strong. It's synthetic, it's progressive, or legs, when, when you run with passion, your legs ache, your heart uh, and, and side hurt, but cross the finish line first, and you'll receive the gold medal. Catch the football, and you're going to get hit on every side, and your head is going to hurt, but one more touchdown, and you're going to win the world championship. Now back to our text. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but don't stop now. Don't give up. God is with you. God is for you. God has a plan, and and, and a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Yeah, let's put our hands together and praise Him. And to those of you whose heart is growing sick because you've been hoping for so long and you're on the verge of giving up, don't give up now. There's a song that ministered to my spirit this week, and it says, it's a new worship song, hear the word roaring as thunder with a new future to tell. For the dry season is over, there is a cloud beginning to swell to the skies heavy with blessing lift your eyes offer your heart Jesus Christ open the heavens now we receive the spirit of Christ we receive your rain we receive your rain every seed buried in sorrow you will call forth in its time you are Lord Lord of the harvest calling out hope to arise we receive your rain we receive your rain we receive your rain Amen. listen if you have been in a series, in, in, a, in, in a season of your life where you've been hoping, and uh, very naturally your heart has been longing, and your heart has been growing sick, don't give up now. Don't stop expecting God to bless your future. Don't stop expecting God to give you a harvest. Don't stop expecting God to answer your prayers. There is a harvest on the way, because hope deferred makes the heart sick, but if we don't stop, a desire fulfilled will be a tree of life. And if your heart is longing, and if your heart is growing sick, everything is not going wrong. Everything is exactly as it should be. Amen. Take Moses, for example. Moses, who murdered somebody and getting outside the timing of God, and was 40 years in his life removed from a heart that had any kind of hope or any kind of desire or any kind of passion or any kind of fellowship with God. And on top of that, st- 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 Stuttered and just stammered and didn't think that God could ever use somebody like him, ended up being God's mighty man and one of the greatest, the greatest deliverer in history. Take Gideon, for example, who looked at his circumstances, and humanly speaking, there was no hope, certainly not through him because his tribe was the least in all of Israel, and his clan was the least in his tribe, and his family was the least in his clan, and he was the least in his family, and he had severe self-esteem issues, and yet God looked at him in due season and said, Arise, mighty man of valor. Take David, who of eight brothers was the least and overlooked, and nobody thought David would amount to anything. And yet, God said, No, no, I don't look as on the outside. I look at the heart, and He's got a heart for me. And look at this guy who became king and committed adultery and had somebody killed and lied and who got so outside of fellowship with God. And yet, after all of that, because of the grace of God and David's confession of sin in Psalm 51, God looked at David in the New Testament and said, Now, this is a man after my own heart. You take Ruth who had an insurmountable mountain of racial discrimination to overcome, and yet she was clothed in complete dignity. You look at Peter, who cursed and denied and forsook, and the disciples who cursed and denied and forsook, and Saul, who was tearing down the church that he would eventually build up. You look at anybody who has ever been blessed by God and used by God, and they had to walk through severe seasons of trials and tribulations and discouragements and failures and setbacks. but they have one thing in common and that's that they didn't give up in the love of God and the promises of God and the plans of God and the power of God if they would simply repent and get back up the only time you cannot afford to fail is the time that you don't get back up the Bible tells us in Proverbs a just man not might a just man woman boy and girl will fall seven times but seven times they rise again how about you are you willing to rise again? Are you willing to get back up? I believe that there are a few reasons that we tend to fall down and stay down. One is we tend to think, I've failed too many times, God. I've too many times. How could you use me? Well, you're in good company. You're in the company of every man of God and woman of God who has ever been used by God. And the Bible tells us in 1 John 1, 9, my... Children, you're going to stumble. You're going to fall. But if you're a Christian, you've got an advocate. His name is Jesus Christ. You can boldly make your requests known, but you've got to confess that sin you got to get that sin out of your life. you got to confess it. you got to repent of it. And we read in 1 John 1, 9, a just man. Well, in 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And if you have been using the excuse to not hope and to not persevere because you've failed one too many times, I've just blown your theology out of the water, and it's time through the cross of Christ and the love of Christ and repentance to get back up today. Some of you might have given up hope because you think God has forgotten me. God has forgotten me. We read in Isaiah 43, 25, Can a mother forget her child? Can a nursing mother forget her child? Though she might forget, God says, I will never forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. That promise points us to the cross of Christ where Jesus says, see how much I love you. I have not given up on you. I have not forgotten you. Psalm 139 says that there are more thoughts in God's mind on every second than there are grains of sand on the beach. Those thoughts and plans are for you. Some of you think, uh... I don't want to hope anymore. I'm just kind of giving up because my life has been constant struggles. We just need to shift our perspective on these struggles a little bit. There's a story about this kid, and he thought he was going to be the greatest baseball player in the world. So he goes out in this front yard. He's got his baseball, and he's got his bat, and he throws the baseball up, and he, and he basically just tosses it up, and he swings, and he misses So he picks the baseball up again, and he swings, and he misses. And he does this 81 times, and he swings, and he misses every time. And on the 81st swing and miss, he drops the bat, and he holds his hand in the air, and he says, I'm the greatest baseball player in the world! And his neighbor was across the street, and he says, you just swung and missed 81 times. And the kid says, no, 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 I wasn't batting, I was pitching. I just threw a no-hitter. I'm the greatest pitcher in the world. (laughs) And if you if you think your life has been constant struggles, you just need to shift your perspective just a little bit. God is not punishing you. God is refining you. And we read in Isaiah 48, as silver is refined in the furnace, so you are being refined in the furnace of affliction. And we know that silver was refined seven times in the furnace until it was perfectly smooth. And the metalsmith could see his reflection in the metal. And God takes us through the furnace of affliction to refine us so that Jesus Christ could look at us and he can see his reflection in us. Your life has been constant struggles, not because God has forgotten you, not because God has given up on you, but 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 because God is refining you in the furnace of affliction so that he can see his face in you. And your heart can be finally satisfied in Christ, and the world around you can be satisfied because they can see Christ in you. And some may say, I've waited too long, I've prayed too many prayers, but remember, faith in Christ is not technological. Faith in Christ and the way the whole kingdom of heaven works is agricultural. You see the difference? In technology, you push a button and you get instant coffee, you get instant popcorn, you get instant communication. But in agriculture, you plant a seed and you work the ground and you labor and you toil and you sweat and the seasons come and go and you persevere and then that seed explodes through the ground by the hand of God. Don't quit. Your promise is a harvest and it's right around the corner. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9 tells us, Do not grow weary in doing good, for in due season you will reap a harvest if you don't give up. And so, three uh, just closing thoughts, practical application for you. First is this in relation to this harvest, in relation to becoming a tree of life, it's agricultural, it's in the ground, it's going to spring forth, not just to bless you, but so that you can be a blessing. That's what a tree does. A tree isn't just life, a tree is a source of life. A tree isn't just shade, it's a source of shade. God is going to bless you so you can be a blessing. He's going to give you life so you can be a source of life as people see Christ in you, but you can't give up. Galatians 6, 9, do not grow weary in doing good, for in due season you will, not might, you will reap a harvest if you don't give up. God's salvation for you is unconditional. Trust in the cross of Christ. Your harvest is conditional. You can't give up. So, three practical applications for you. One, make sure you're not hindering the outpouring of your own blessing. Make sure you're not hindering the outpouring of your own blessing. We read in Proverbs 28, verse 9, that if we disregard God's word and live however we want, then God will disregard our prayers. We read in Psalm chapter 66 verse 18 that if you cherish sin in your heart, your prayers will be hindered. We read in 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 7 that uh, corroborating these principles... Husbands, if you just disregard your wife and you don't nurture her and you embitter her, then it's going to hinder your prayer life. All of that to say we could be our own worst enemy and we usually are. I, I am my own worst enemy. I've had some enemies, but I am definitely my own worst enemy and you are probably your own worst enemy as well. Make sure that your own Cherishing of sin in your heart isn't hindering the outpouring of blessing in your life. But if that's the case, the good news is all it takes is repenting and getting that cherished sin out of your heart and saying, "God, change my heart, give me a new heart." Developing accountability or whatever the situation may be, and turning from that sin and walking with God. And in an instant, we see that the prodigal son came home and received an outpouring of blessing. It's not that the dad didn't love him when the prodigal was in his sin, but the dad couldn't bless him when the prodigal was in his sin. He wasn't going to enable him, but. The moment the prodigal repented of his sin and came home, he received an outpouring of blessing. And so let me ask you this. Are you your own worst enemy? Are you hindering a blessing in your life because you're cherishing sin in your heart? In a sense, that's good news because it's real easy. You just repent and get accountability and turn and seek Christ and experience the floodgates of heaven open up and receive blessings that there's not room enough to to hold. Second, remember Longing is life. It's not that you're longing, it's not that your desire is too weak, it's too strong, it's too weak, but long and desire for the things of God. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God. Not all these things that the that the pagans and people don't care about God run after thinking that it's going to give them significance and popularity or worldly security or whatever intimacy or whatever it might be. Jesus, Jesus said don't run after all of these things that the world runs after. Instead, you seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all of these things will be added unto you. It's not that your longing is too strong. It's that your longing is too weak for God and the promises of God and the things of God. And if you seek Christ the scriptures tell us he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him seek him what rewards does he has planned for you oh they're unspeakable it's more than you could ask or imagine and don't you miss it make sure you're not hindering your own blessings don't get tired of longing because longing is life and it's not that your longings are too strong, they're too weak, but redirect them to long for Christ. And thirdly, trusting God's heart for you and His timing. I wanted to want that opportunity, but I had to follow Christ. And to be honest, I didn't know that I was going to follow Christ here to this location. I didn't know. I didn't know that if I was just fulfilling my responsibility to be the captain that was going to go down with the ship, to be honest, but the only safe place is God's place, and it's His will for your life, and we just have to trust His love for us, and we just have to trust His timing upon our lives one of my favorite parts of my week was an email that I received from Iris. Luke has been out of town, so Iris has done a great job of teaching deeper for the last, I believe, three weeks. And uh, she sent me an email of a testimony, and she said that preparing for deeper this past Wednesday, she sensed the Lord impress upon her heart to pray for salvation. Pray for salvation. So she went to teach the deeper Bible study expecting somebody to get saved, and guess what? Nobody was saved. Ah, oh well. Thank you guys for coming out. No, I'm just kidding. The testimony continues. But isn't that how we do it? We pray and it doesn't work out the way we anticipate it. So we're like, oh well. And we just give up. Amen. Praise God. She prayed. She prayed believing. She prayed expecting for salvation. She did a great job teaching it deeper. There's no salvation. but she didn't stop trusting God's love. She didn't stop trusting God's heart. She didn't stop trusting God's timing. She didn't stop longing. Longing is beautiful. Longing is life. And so she went home and she was walking her dog and she sat down and one of her neighbors came and sat down beside her and they started talking and before you know it, she, needs, she leads her neighbor to salvation in Christ. It's praising. You know, it is God's timing. It is God's way. Just don't stop longing. The moment you stop longing, life is over. You may be alive physically, but you're a hollow corpse. You're like a wax figure at the museum. It kind of looks like Elvis, and it kind of looks like Oprah Winfrey, and it kind of looks like Madonna, but it's not really them. It's just kind of spooky and creepy looking. And the moment we stop hoping, we become a wax figure, an empty shell, and sad reminder of who we used to be and who we're supposed to be, but not who God created us to be, and the essence of our life. The Bible tells us in Proverbs, it's from the heart, protect your heart, guard your heart, for from it flows the issues of life. It is not just talking about blood, giving life to your physical bodies, that is talking about hope and longing for Christ and the promises of Christ, giving life to your spiritual soul. Don't stop longing. Proverbs thirteen twelve tells us, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but don't you stop longing, because a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. And worship team, if you could come on up, and this is, a, this is a poem or a statement, I don't know what it is, but it's ministered to me over the years, from one of our presidents, Teddy Roosevelt. If you would stand with me as well, please. And it reads... And this is written for you right now who are in the trenches hoping. You're in the trenches longing. This is written for you. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. You're in the trenches. You're you're praying. You're persevering. You're working. Don't decrease your longing. Intensify your longings. They're not too strong. They're too weak. Intensify them. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. It doesn't matter if you're 13... Or eight like Josiah when he became king? Or seventeen like David when he was anointed king? Or if you're seventy-five like Abram, who started following Christ, or 120 like Noah, who started following God, it doesn't matter if you're eight or thirteen or seventeen or it doesn't matter if you're seventy-five, it doesn't matter if you're 120. Don't decrease your longings, intensify your longings. Because a longing fulfilled, and it will be fulfilled in God's timing and in God's way, it will be fulfilled. And you will be a tree of life. You will be blessed. And you'll be a blessing to others and a source of life to others. As Roosevelt said, it is not the critic who counts nor the man who points out how the strong man stumbled, or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, who's longing, who's praying, who's serving, who's seeking. They're in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best, in the end, knows the triumph of high achievement, And who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. And so in response, let's just take a moment and enter into worship together and pray, Oh God, I repent of any sin that I might be cherishing in my heart that's hindering your blessings being poured upon my life. And pray. Oh God, intensify my longing to seek your face and pray and stand on your promises and serve in the body of Christ and save the lost and dying world. Intensify my longings, God. Let my heart beat like yours. So let's respond to God through worship.